Many of you are probably familiar with J.K. Rowling and the, the author of the Harry Potter book series. And though you may be familiar with her books, you might not be familiar with her life three years prior to the publishing of the first book in that series. In her 2008 Harvard commencement speech, she speaks about a time in her life when she had hit rock bottom. Four months after her eldest daughter was born, her marriage fell apart, ending in divorce. Rowling describes it this way. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass. And by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. That period of my life is a dark one. I had no idea then how far the tunnel extended. And for a long time, any light at the end of it was a hope rather than a reality. And so Rowling began to channel all of her energy into writing her first book in that series, The Sorcerer's Stone. However, she was so poor that she couldn't afford a computer, nor could she afford the cost to photocopy her 90,000-word novel. So she had to manually type out a copy for each publisher. And after being turned down time and time and time again, Finally, Bloomsbury Children's Books reached out to publish it. Since that point, 500 million copies of her Harry Potter books have been sold. Looking back on those hard days, she said that that rock bottom became the solid foundation upon which I built my life. Success for Rowling was built on her failures. And last week... We saw that Jonah as well hit rock bottom. And yet Jonah's success wasn't ultimately built, nor nor did his success rest upon his failures, but upon the grace of God in giving him a second chance. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in Jonah chapter 3. So if you would, turn with me there to Jonah chapter 3. You can find it on page 774 in the red seat back Bible there in front of you. So far, we've seen Jonah on the run from the Lord. The Lord commissioned Jonah to go east to Nineveh, but Jonah said no, and he boarded a ship going west to Tarshish. Interestingly, though Jonah ran, the Lord actually ran after him like a crime and punishment scene in a movie. But rather than cop cars and handcuffs, the Lord hurled a storm on the sea, which led Jonah to being thrown overboard. And while Jonah was sinking to the bottom of the sea, the Lord appointed a giant fish to swallow him up. As we saw last week, it was in the heart of that fish that God began to do heart surgery upon Jonah. The Lord was bringing Jonah to his knees to show him that his greatest need was him. And though Jonah believed the Lord to be judging him through these intense events, it was the Lord's mercy that was in relentless pursuit of Jonah. In chapter 2, we see Jonah lifting up a song of thanksgiving to the Lord for delivering him from imminent death. In chapter 1, we learn that fleeing the will of the Lord 
is foolish because the mercy of the Lord is relentless. In chapter 2, we saw that we can rejoice in salvation when we turn to the Lord of salvation. But Jonah didn't remain in the belly of the fish. The Lord commanded the fish to vomit him out onto dry land. Jonah had now experienced the salvation that he would go and preach to Nineveh. And having returned to the Lord, Jonah is recommissioned to Nineveh. So let's read the next episode in this story. Listen as I read Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The storyline in chapter 3 has a central message to it, and maybe you noticed it there toward the end. As you will follow along in the story, we come to the climax and the resolution. And the common, refl- the common refrain that we actually see right there is the word turn. Maybe you noticed that. Verses 8 through 10, look with me there. It's mentioned four times in verses 8 through 10. Verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way. Verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent in turn from his fierce anger. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. And so we see right here that the emphasis of the text is upon repentance. That's the emphasis of the text. It's right there in the climax and the resolution of the text. And the main idea that's being conveyed as this story progresses on is this, that when sinners repent, God relents. That's the main idea. When sinners repent, God relents. That's the main idea of Jonah 3. Because salvation, 
belongs to the Lord. No matter who you are, where you're from, or how far from God that you really are, for anyone who genuinely turns from their evil and trusts in the Lord, you can be delivered from his judgment. You can receive mercy. And we see this progression in the story, which moves from Jonah's mission and message to the Ninevites in verses 1 through 4 to the response of both the Ninevites and God in verses 5 through 10. And this progression actually serves as our points this morning. So point number one, an important mission, verses 1 through 5. An important mission, verses 1 through 4, sorry. Point number two, an incredible mercy, verses 5 through 10. An incredible mercy, verses 5 through 10. So point number one, an important mission. Our text begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now what's remarkable is that though Jonah ran from the word of the Lord, the Lord still gave him his word a second time. Right? We had just saw, right, and although we just saw Jonah in the last chapter repenting of his sin and receiving the Lord's mercy, the Lord didn't have to reinstate Jonah to his original commission. He wasn't obligated to do that. And it's remarkable that the Lord doesn't just replace Jonah with someone else. He doesn't just give up on him. He doesn't tell him to go back and retire in Gath Heifer in Galilee. He doesn't go and find a new prophet. Instead, the Lord it reinstates him to his original commission. He gives him his word a second time. And what we're meant to see by this is God's extravagant grace to flawed messengers like you and me. That's what we're meant to see. Jonah quit on the Lord, but the Lord did not quit on Jonah. Instead, the Lord wanted him to proclaim the very message that he had experienced. And what else is remarkable is that God often does the, that very thing to us. He does the same for us. All of us in here have missed opportunities in evangelism, whether that's not sharing Christ out of a fear of rejection, not sharing him out of a fear of a lack of knowledge, not knowing enough to be able to share, or even just a past evangelistic experience going poorly in a, in a relationship, being hindered because of it. Whatever it may be, God is gracious toward us in giving us second chances. As long as we have breath, he gives grace to share Christ again. Rather than letting our failures hinder our evangelism, we can actually let God's grace motivate our evangelism. In fact, one of the motivations for being a vessel of God's mercy is what? That you've experienced God's mercy. And that is gloriously good news. The mission does not ride upon your failure. It rides on the grace of God. And we're called to be obedient, even with missed opportunities. Well, this is not only just God's heart towards Jonah, this is also God's heart, his heart toward the Ninevites. And because judgment is imminent, Jonah's mission is urgent. It is urgent. In chapter 1, verse 2, look with me there. The Lord told Jonah to arise and to go. And now he repeats that command in chapter 3, verse 2. Some, re, some translations have actually taken it as, get up and go, or go immediately. 
Either way, the point is clear. The mission is urgent. It wasn't time for Jonah to just take a break after being vomited out of the fish. He gets called back into action, and he has got to go. But why? Because God's judgment towards sinners is imminent. His patience will not last forever. It has an expiration date on it. In this passage, it was 40 days for the Ninevites. Jonah declares, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah doesn't say that they might be overthrown. No, he says, you will be overthrown. Judgment is real. Time is short. The mission is urgent, and it's the same today. The mission of the church is urgent. And one of the ways that we gain a sense of urgency is by aligning our hearts with God's. When our hearts are molded to his, we begin to love what God loves. Think about your relationship to that of a close friend. The longer that you get to know them and spend time with them, your hearts begin to become knit to one another. What burdens them burdens you. Their passions become your passions. In a similar way, the more that we study God's heart for the nations, the more that our hearts are going to be tuned to the frequency of God's heart. From Genesis to Revelation, we learn that God isn't a God of of one nation, but of all nations. He is not limited to one village, to one tribe, to one province. This was Jonah's problem. He loved his own people, and he hated his enemies. He loved God's grace toward him more than his enemies. The Lord's heart for Jonah was just a bunch of white noise. It said, God is seeking a people to worship him from every tongue, from every tribe, and from every nation for the praise of his glory. We saw that in the scripture reading in chapter 7 of Revelation, in verse 9, where we have a people gathered around God's throne doing what? Worshiping him, giving praise to him. Our hearts will only be as missional as they are shaped by God's heart for all nations. Brothers and sisters, don't let your heart toward God's heart and his plan for all peoples just become a bunch of white noise. Don't let your heart get like that. God is determined to get his word to Gentile lands, and if our hearts aren't shaped by his, then we may end up like Jonah in chapter 4, which we're going to be looking at next week. And so study God's heart for the nations. Go back and look at those called and sent seminars. Go get the audio to those and listen to those. Open up your Bible and just follow along as we just trace throughout Scripture God's own heart for the nations. And then pray that God would increasingly conform your heart to His, that you would have a passion and a desire to want to see people from every tongue, tribe, and language come to faith in Jesus Christ and then begin to consider what that could look like in your life. Don't forget God's heart toward you, a Gentile, just like the Ninevites. His love toward you should lead you to love what he loves, gathering a people from all nations around his throne to worship him. A friend of mine once said that a heart for the nations isn't something you have or don't have. It's something you need to get. 
Because hell is real. Time is short. And the mission is urgent. And it's not going to be easy. And if our hearts aren't grounded in God's heart, then we're going to give up on the mission. We're going to give up on that mission. Loving what God loves actually helps to prevent us from forfeiting the mission when it gets hard, as we see in these next couple of verses. And so look with me there in verse 3. The mission's not going to be easy. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. Now you got to admit, this task seems absolutely daunting for Jonah. It would be like us walking up into ISIS territory and then hollering out that God's going to let judgment rain on them. We would be shaking in our boots for something like that. And yet look at the text. Even the Lord calls Nineveh great in verse 2. Not only was it great, it was exceedingly great city. It took three whole days to walk around it. But it wasn't just big in circumference, it was also big in, in people. If you look at chapter 4, verse 11, how many people are there? 120,000 people. Not only was it great in population, it was great in importance. It would later become the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Now you also might remember that, hey, these are probably not Jonah's gym buddies that he's going out and doing CrossFit with. They were terrorists to his own nation. We saw in chapter 1, verse 2, they were so evil that the Lord took notice of them. That's how Jonah got commissioned. <laughs> and this is how he got commissioned in the first place. And you would think that preaching a message about their judgment probably wasn't the most palatable message. Jonah wasn't going there to win friends and influence people. When I read this passage throughout the week, I just kept thinking about Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins rolling up into Mordor in the final book of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It was them versus the world. And you had to be thinking, there is no way this is going to happen. Contrary to the Hunger Games, the odds were ever not in their favor. Jonah was one against 120,000. 120,000, or so it seemed. Jonah went according to the Lord. It may have looked like the deck was stacked against Jonah, but he had the one who created the heavens and the earth. He had the one whom salvation belonged to on his side. His heart, God's heart, was set on Nineveh. And though the odds were stacked against Jonah, the odds are absolutely never stacked against God. Brothers and sisters, the sovereignty of God in salvation ought to put steel in our spines in evangelism. Some of you will take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and you should. You need to go and get up and go. You should do that. Others of you are going to take the gospel across the street, and you should. And yet all of us have been called to be goers, both locally and globally. And when the battle to refrain from the mission arises in our hearts, we have got to plant our hearts upon the heart of God and rest in his salvation, rest in his sovereignty in salvation. His sovereignty is what gives you courage. It's what gives you comfort. It's what gives you confidence and endurance in your evangelistic efforts to improbable people in improbable places. 
That's what it does. God hasn't called us. He has not called us to an easy mission. But you bet he has promised to be with us every step of the way. Let that comfort, let that encourage you to keep pressing forward and seeking opportunities to evangelize your neighbor, your family member, your coworker, your classmate. Our confidence in evangelism doesn't ride upon our strength. It rides upon God's sovereignty. And we reflect God's heart and his plan to save a people for himself by trusting in that sovereignty, trusting in him. Well, this sovereignty not only reigns over the difficulty of the mission, but also even its message. Look with me, look with me there in verse 2. The Lord says to Jonah in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This was not Jonah's message. Did you notice that and catch that? This is the message that I, the Lord, will tell you. And that message was only five Hebrew words. Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now it's possible that that was probably a summary of of a greater message that Jonah actually gave. But either way, we get the gist of it. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The word overthrown right there is the same word that's used to speak about Sodom and Gomorrah being overthrown. And yet this is not at all all what we would expect. This is not what we would expect would win the hearts of the people of Nineveh. And what's remarkable is how unremarkable this message is. There was no flashing lights, there's no smoke screen, there's no motivational speech to turn over a new leaf in your life. Rather, it was the unadulterated word of God. That's what this was. It was simple. It was five words. It was clear, judgment is coming, and yet it came with power. Friends, there will be times when we want to make God's word more palatable to digest for our friends and our neighbors. It's going to be easier at times in our own heart, right? We think it to be easier on the ears for our peers to just change and distort that message. Many of us, myself included, have felt that temptation, particularly in a, in a culture that is, that is going a certain direction, opposite of the way that we are going. If I could just add to or subtract from God's word here or there, maybe I could just not mention hell. Maybe then they would listen. Brothers and sisters, God does not need an editor. He does not need an editor. There is not one word throughout the scriptures that God blushes at, that he speaks. Because when we try to edit the word of God, we strip it of its power. The word of God is clear. Those things that are necessary for salvation and spiritual growth can be clearly understood in scripture. The word of God is simple. God commands his people in Deuteronomy 6 to teach their children his commands. It's simple without being simplistic. Even children can understand God's word. And the word of God is powerful. It creates what it commands. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1.16 that the gospel, the message of good news, is the power of God for salvation. It's so powerful that the Ninevites didn't even need 40 days to repent. It brings them immediately They understood what that word 
meant for them. This is one of the main emphases of the Protestant Reformation. They sought to translate the Bible into the language of the common people so that all could read and interpret the word for themselves. That anyone, whether you were a priest, a scholar, a maid, a blacksmith, or a child, you could open up God's word, clearly understand it, understand what it means to have salvation, and live according to the word of God. The Lord is making it clear that the mission wasn't dependent upon Jonah. Jonah was responsible to go and to proclaim, but the results were ultimately up to God. And it's the same for us. When we go and we share the gospel, our effectiveness is not dependent upon our eloquence, but upon faithfully sharing God's word, which is effective at softening even the hardest of hearts. You can speak of the wrath of God, You can speak of the the need of salvation with confidence because God is the Lord of salvation and his word meets people where they're at. It lifts their eyes to eternal realities and gets people off of thinking about their own self-interest. It helps them to consider their life in light of eternity. Our confidence in the face of a difficult mission, proclaiming a difficult word, is found in our sovereign God, whose word has the power to save. This ought to cause us to rest well at night. I know it does me when I've got to stand up here and preach. So go out proclaiming the gospel with all all boldness, because salvation belongs to the Lord, and his word has the power to be able to save. We see the power of this word and the conviction that it actually brings in our next point, point number two, an incredible Mercy, verses 5 through 10. Well, we're left here with some suspense. If we're just reading this story, we've, if the story, we've got some suspense right here. How will these wicked Ninevites respond to this message of judgment, this unpalatable message? Surely they would kill Jonah and just throw him outside the city. And then we read verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. We're not talking about just a couple of people. We're talking about an entire city. This is incredible because it's the same phrase that's used to speak about Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice that it doesn't say that they believed Jonah. They didn't believe Jonah. Jonah delivered the message, but what they heard was the very voice of God. And so God's word is powerful to save. To reject that word is to reject God. To accept that word is to accept God. And his word fell upon them like a hammer that crushed their hearts of stone. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that when you share God's word with others, that they're hearing the very voice of God. They're not hearing just you. They're hearing the very voice of God through you. That if they reject his word, They are not most fundamentally rejecting you. They are rejecting God. And so keep proclaiming his word. Because it means that through, it's the means through which the spirit of God actually takes that word and converts even the hardest of hearts. He brings about the new birth in them. After all, you may never know when God pulls a Nineveh. You never know. But how do we know that their response is genuine? How do we know the response was genuine? 
Look at the rest of the passage. Verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Literally, the greatest to the least. All were involved. Even the king. It says in verse 6 that he took off his robe. Did you notice this? He took off his robe, symbolizing power and wealth, and he traded it for sackcloth, symbolizing mourning. He traded his throne, a place of royalty and status, for sitting in ashes, a place of humility. The one with the highest seat took the lowest seat. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes were all demonstrations of mourning and were the normal method of expressing one's repentance toward God. We see this elsewhere in in the prophet of Joel in chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, where the Lord calls his people to repent by commanding them to put on sackcloth and lament, to consecrate a fast, and to cry out to the Lord. But the Ninevites, (laughs) they went all out. They went all out. Not only was it the greatest of them to the least of them, it was also extensive. The king and his nobles issue a proclamation throughout Nineveh that not only are the men and the women to put on sackcloth, nor eat or drink anything, but even the animals. Even the animals were to do this. Verse 8, everyone was calling out mightily to God to turn from their evil way, from the violence of their hands. And we know this repentance is genuine. We know it's genuine. Others will sit there and say, well, were they really converted or not? We know it's genuine. Luke chapter 11, verse 32, Jesus says that the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah and will rise at the judgment to condemn those who rejected Jesus in his day, the one who is greater than Jonah. Last week, we learned that repentance means to return on the road to which you came. It means to turn from sin and to turn toward God in faith. And faith and repentance are really just two sides of that conversion coin. You can't have one without the other. And so a litmus test for the Ninevites' faith being genuine was how thorough their repentance was. So notice what else we learn about their repentance right here in this verse. Notice what we learn about the repentance of the Ninevites. Number one, they felt a godly sorrow over their sin and evil. Sackcloth and ashes, that's the demonstration of it. They were serious and thorough in their response. Number two, they were serious and thorough in their response. Man and beast, small and great, everybody is bowing to the Lord. Number three, they cried out mightily to God. Number four, they turned from their evil way and the violence of their hands. There was a change of heart that led to a change in behavior. Repentance led to action. Number five, and finally in verse nine, the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, that is his hot nostrils, his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. The king did not presume upon God's kindness toward him. That's important. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, do you presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you 
to repentance. The king didn't think he was entitled to God's mercy, but he was hopeful that he would get to receive it. And yet the great irony in all this is that God's own people, Israel, weren't characterized by such repentance. That's part of the great ironies of this text in the lesson to Israel itself. Here we have this pagan, wicked nation calling out mightily to God, calling out to him. Whereas God's people are characterized by what? Stiff necks, hard hearts, completely opposite. They're the people of God. And it was still a problem in Paul's day. In Acts chapter 22, upon hearing his testimony and his commission by God, the Jews in the crowd yelled, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Friends, we need to learn the lesson that Israel needed to learn. No matter your social status, your religious upbringing, or the nation that you come from, all are called to repent because sin has leveled the playing field, and all stand condemned before a holy God. Repentance doesn't just happen when you're saved, but it's ongoing. Did you notice the focus on repentance leading to a morally changed life in this text? The king calls the Ninevites to turn from their what? Their evil way and from the violence of their hands in verse 8. And this is what also gets God's attention in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, true repentance is not just a sorrow for one's sin, but a godly sorrow that leads to a changed life. And one of the gifts in helping, in helping with this, one of the gifts that God has given to us is the gift of one another. It's the gift of the local church. We cannot live faithfully for Christ on our own. That is impossible. You have to have the people of God to be able to mature and to conform to the image of Christ. We need the church if we are going to live a genuinely repentant life. And so, brothers and sisters, who, who in this body needs to hold you accountable? Who in this body right now can you regularly go to, to turn to them, to help you turn to the Lord? that will call you out when your words veer toward gossip, that will point you to better words, that will actually build up rather than tear down, that will encourage you with truth when you're place, placing your trust in something other than Christ alone, that will help you see that one of the greatest hindrances of repentance is viewing your sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy with God. We've got to have people that are able to see that to point us to that so that we can turn. Those that will call us out when we only grieve out of disappointment in our inability to do what is right and rather than actually despising the living God himself, as it's been said. Brothers and sisters, we need one another to do this or else we're going to be going on being self-deceived, which leads to destruction and will actually so reveal that we were never in Christ to begin with. We need one another. True repentance is always a work of God, working upon the heart of his people to turn and to rely upon him and to change their ways. And so pray for it. Ask someone to walk alongside you to help you bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You need that. I need that. And we need it today.
That morning, the people of Nineveh woke up destined for destruction. By the end of the day, they were robed in sackcloth and ashes, crying out to Jonah's God. And though God saw what they did, how was he going to respond to it? How did he respond? Look with me at verse 10 as we begin to close. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relented. This is amazing because God is showing Jonah that his heart isn't just for his people Israel, but it's for all who repent and who actually turn to him in repentance and faith. The Lord says in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. The Lord, doesn't, the Lord does not desire any to perish, but many will because they do not turn from their sin. Eternal judgment is the just consequence of our rebellion against God. For all who genuinely repent, God shows mercy. He withholds what they deserve. That is that eternal condemnation. And he gives them what they don't deserve, eternal life. Now you may be asking yourself, how could, you, how could God relent of something that he said that he would do? You might be asking yourself that. Did God change his mind? And what does this mean for the other promises throughout Scripture? Well, the Scriptures are clear. God is unchanging. He doesn't change his mind, nor does he change his eternal purposes or his plans. They don't change. And this threat of Nineveh right here was not an internal decree, but it was a conditional warning contingent upon Nineveh's repentance. And we see this throughout the Scriptures. We see this in other places, such as Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8, where the Lord says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Inside the explicit statement on judgment, is the condition. If you repent. That's the condition. If you repent. And friend, praise God that that condition is still there for you today. Hundreds of years after Jonah, another prophet from Galilee would step on to the scene who would die and rise on the third day to vindicate who he is and what he said. And he warned the religious establishment of his day, the folks that you thought were in his kingdom. He warned them that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This one, greater than Jonah, took our place on the cross to pay for our sin against God. And for all who repent of their evil way and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they trust in him for salvation, God relents his wrath is removed from you, and you receive the blessing of salvation today. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. Friend, be like the king of Nineveh. Don't presume upon God's kindness. Rather, let that kindness lead you to repentance. The Ninevites didn't need 40 days to repent. Neither should you. Repent. Trust in Christ. Turn to him. 
Because the city that will be destroyed like Nineveh, that is nothing to the destruction of a soul in hell for an eternity. It's nothing. Contrary to popular opinion, the threat of judgment is a mercy of God. Repentance is a mercy of God. Christ leaving heaven for a throne of wood is a mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, our salvation is an incredible mercy of God. And so let that comfort you. Let that compel you to continue bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Because when sinners repent, God relents. Let's pray.